I'm so blessed. You're so blessed. We're all so blessed. In the Christian circles that we run in, those words just roll off our tongues, don't they? We're so blessed. And oftentimes they roll off our tongues without a second thought as to what we actually mean when we say that. What do we mean when we say I'm blessed? Do we mean, well, things are going really well for me right now, or I'm really happy with the place that I'm in? Serious question, do we use the word blessed as a spiritualized term for good fortune? Is that what we mean? See, that's definitely how the world tends to think of it. When we say blessed, that's what they tend to think. I saw a very interesting conversation this week on the website Reddit, which, uh, yeah, has some very interesting conversations on it. I, I don't necessarily recommend that you go there, but occasionally you can type in a question and you get some interesting conversations. A contributor by the name of Kevin said this about this subject of blessedness. I know Kevin, right? Listen, this is quite insightful. He said, I absolutely hate it when people say they are so blessed. It usually goes like this. I just got a new car. I'm so blessed. Or my kids are doing great in school. I feel so blessed to be their parent. Or just got a promotion at work. What a blessing. This bothers me for a few reasons, he said. First, it signifies that everything these people have in their life is the result of some divine being that has decided to bring good fortune to them and only them. I'm blessed because I have a new car and got a promotion, but that little kid in Africa, he's not as blessed as I am. He hasn't curried enough favor to be blessed like me. Second, it dumps on everyone else's hard work. Am I blessed because I have a car I love, a nice house, a good job, and plenty to eat? No, I'm not blessed. I have those things because I busted my tail to get them. I went to school and got two degrees. I pushed myself. I didn't get sprinkled with magic to get the things I have, so why should I give credit to something or someone that didn't lift a finger to help? Now, we'll come back to Kevin a little bit later because his attitude and his worldview is the norm among the people that we interact with in the world today. And it serves as a perfect example for what our text talks about this morning. So grab your Bibles. We're going to Psalm, which one? Psalm 1. Beautiful. Why Psalm 1? Because last Sunday we were introduced to the book of Psalms. We are starting a new series. If you're visiting this morning... And last Sunday, we talked about all kinds of really big picture things. We talked about Hebrew poetry and, and Hebrew parallelism. And yes, we'll unpack some of that here this morning. We talked about eight different types of psalms. We talked about how beloved the psalms are as the hymn book of Israel. And then we talked about how important it is for us today in the church to love, embrace singing praises to our king. And I promise you that throughout this series, we are going to open up our hearts and we are going to engage in the, the full range of human experience and expression and emotion, just as the psalmist does. So it starts today. Now, I, I keep getting this question. I, I thought I'd answered it, but I keep getting the question, Jeff, are you going to preach through every single psalm? And the answer is no, because I want to get back to the New Testament before I turn 65. So no. 
The plan is I am going to preach through these five collections within the greater book, one at a time, and for the most part, we'll go through them based on key themes that we see throughout the Psalms, right? So we'll see how this plays out. Right now, the elders have asked me the question, I don't have an answer. How long is this series going to be? As long as the Spirit tells me to keep preaching. Okay, so we'll sort of let him uh, guide us through it, and he'll carry us along, and we'll trust his, his judgment. So having said that, we are going to treat the first two psalms individually. As soon as I say that, I'm like, but there's an exception. We're going to treat these two, two, two psalms individually because they serve as sort of the gateway to the rest of the collection. Some have called Psalm 1 and 2 the doorkeeper to the other 148 psalms. And in fact, there are reasons to believe that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 were a deliberate pairing by the organizer of the Psalms and that they actually are designed to introduce the two most dominant themes in the entire book. So they're very, very important. So if we look at it, Psalm 1 is, is personal and individual, and then Psalm 2 is global and national. So they make an interesting pairing. Psalm 1 contrasts the way of the wicked and the way of the righteous, and then Psalm 2 introduces this person, the anointed Messiah King, who is called God's Son. He's introduced to the rebellious nations of the world. So paired together, these two psalms provide basically a lens or a grid through which the reader is encouraged to interpret the entire book. So today and next Sunday are critical messages in terms of laying the foundation of what God wants to tell us in this series. The other feature that actually causes scholars to connect the first two psalms is a literary tool called an inclusio. Now, I know last Sunday I gave you all these big sort of technical terms. There'll be more as we go through this. But this idea of an inclusio is where the author uses words or phrases at the beginning of a unit of thought and then repeats it at the end of that same unit of thought. So you can think of it like a sandwich. Right? These words or phrases are like the bread on the top and the bottom and the material in between the bread, the, the meat and whatever else. I just put meat and cheese in my sandwich. So whatever you put in your sandwich, they still don't know me. I know. Whatever, whatever's in between there is meant to be read together as an inclusio. So for example, uh, the first phrase in Psalm 1 is how blessed is the man. At the very end of chapter 2, you see how blessed are all who take refuge in him. Okay, so that is, that is what's called an inclusio, inclusio. So it's the fact that those two phrases are, are at the beginning, the end of this section could be, could be, I say, because we don't have the, you know, God's inspired word about it, could, be, could mean that God wants us to read this as one particular unit. All right. So let's read through uh, Psalm chapter 1, just six verses. Okay, actually one last thing before we do that. You'll notice in both Psalm 1 and 2 that there is no title to it, what scholars call no superscription that gives it a title. The first of those will come up in the next Psalm, in Psalm 3, where you do see a title built into it, and that title is a Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. But here in Psalm 1, there is no title. There is no superscription, which makes it very sort of broad and general in scope. Okay, verse 1. You ready? Everybody got it? How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But, contrast, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law... He meditates day and night. 
He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now, the first observation that may come to your mind is, okay, Jeff, this doesn't seem to fit in what you talked about last week. Is this really a poem? And the answer is yes. And it's filled with parallelism, which, again, we'll try to unpack some of that in just a moment. But you also might ask, is this designed to be a song of praise? Is this a worship song? Well, in terms of categories, we talked about eight categories of psalms last week. This is called a wisdom psalm. And you might have recognized that as you were reading it or hearing it, you might have thought to yourself, you know what, this sounds like it might have come out of the book of Proverbs, right? The book of wisdom. And it does. It does sound like it could belong to the collection of Proverbs as well. But the big idea of this psalm is pretty straightforward. There are, there are two paths in this life, two ways in this life. One is the way of the righteous, and that path is the path of wisdom. And then there's the way of the wicked, and that way is the way of folly or foolishness. Obviously, one comes from the Lord, and the other is sponsored by the world. Very, very clear, right? And your state of blessedness, both now and for all eternity, depends on the path that you choose to take. And it's a binary choice. You can't pick both. You can't, there is no third option. When you choose one, you are naturally rejecting the other. So no, Psalm 1 is not specifically designed to be a song of worship, but this is important. It does speak of those who are qualified to worship, who are able to worship the Lord, those, it says in verse 5, who are part of this thing called the assembly of the righteous. The assembly of the righteous. The wicked will not be there in that assembly, which is the corporate place of worship. Now, before we go on, quick theology check. Some of you may look at this and say, well, hold on a second. Who among us is righteous? How can there be a way of righteous? Who among us is righteous? Doesn't Romans 3 tell us that there are none righteous, not even one? Yes, it does. So you got to understand what the inspired word is saying here. The psalmist is obviously not talking about sinless perfection because that's impossible. And he's not talking about obtaining righteousness through good works either because Romans 3 also tells us that no flesh will be justified by the works of the law. So those who are on this path of the righteous are men and women who are objects of God's electing mercy. We have to know that. They are objects of his sovereign grace. That has always been the way people are saved, Old Testament and New Testament. It's never been by work. So we have to keep that in mind as we work our way through Old Testament passages like this one. Okay, so let's look at this word blessed. Back to verse 1. How blessed is the man? All right. The Hebrew noun for blessed is esher, which has as its primitive root a verb that looks and sounds very much like that, asher. And that root verb means what you see on the screen, to go straight, right? To advance in the right direction. So the word blessed in the Hebrew canon refers to the man or woman who is going forward on a straight path. And by doing so, that person is happy and fulfilled and content and at peace. 
And the first statement that you see phrased here is, it has a particular intensity to it. It can be translated, how completely happy is the man? How absolutely fulfilled and content is the man? Now, where does that contentment, that happiness come from? What is the source? Well, obviously, it comes from having God's favor upon him. And so when people ask me, well, I know this word blessed is sort of a a Christianese buzzword. How do I express it? I advise them to take it out of that Christianese setting because that's what annoys people like Kevin, right? When we use that word flippantly and speak of God showing you his favor. God showing you his favor. And then here's the key, not because you're better than anybody else, not because you're deserving of his favor, but because you simply have it based on his mercy and sovereign grace. And so that's the best way to explain this. Don't just flippantly say, oh, I'm so blessed. Because it sounds, it sounds really arrogant sometimes. It can come off condescending. But when you, when you put it in this framework of I don't deserve it, I'm no better than anybody else, you begin to speak the truth about God's mercy and sovereign grace. That's what's at the heart of this Ephesians 1.3 is so important. It says we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, right? There's those buzzwords, blessed, right, with every blessing. Well, Paul goes on to tell us what those blessings are, doesn't he? And what are they? Well, we've been chosen, we've been redeemed, we've been justified, we've been adopted, and we've been promised this great inheritance. Well, guess what? All of those things are purely a work of God, 100%. So it's not because of who we are, not because of what we've done, but because of the great love with which he's loved us. That's how we have to explain it. And because of that love, because he's transforming the desires of our hearts, we now live with a whole new goal and purpose in mind, to bring him glory. We desire now to go straight on, right? Not because we're trying to earn his, his favor, but because of the favor he's shown us. We want to go straight on. We want to advance in the right direction toward the Lord on this path of the righteous. Does that make sense? So you've got to make sure you get that order correct. And you've got to make sure that you explain that well to the unbeliever who might be annoyed by you when you talk about how blessed you are. So happy is a fine translation of the Hebrew word asher, as long as we understand that the psalmist is describing so much more than how we feel. It's a description of the spiritual reality that God has granted us with that brings about that sense of happiness and fulfillment. So do you desire this in your life? Do you desire this happiness, this blessing of God? If so, the psalmist says that you will show it in a few distinct ways. Look at the rest of verse 1. We notice here we have our first example of what we call a synthetic parallelism. That's where the first line of the poem makes a statement, and the statement is, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. And then the second line builds on it in two ways. Nor... Nor does the blessed man stand in the path of sinners, nor does he sit in the seat or company of scoffers. So it's synthetic parallelism. The first statement is built on with more information. Now, I find it interesting that the psalmist begins to define this this state of happiness using three negative examples first, things we should not be doing. Again, let's keep our theology straight. We're not talking about works righteousness here. God's favor is not earned by avoiding these three things. Did you hear me clearly? 
God's favor is not earned by avoiding these three things. But as those who have been favored by him, we have a calling and a responsibility to separate ourselves from things that are wicked in his sight. So get the order correct. And while the essence of our faith is not negative, sometimes its expressions are. And for good reason, it's for our good. It's for our happiness. Listen, the commandments of God get a bad rap today, don't they? Nobody wants to talk about the commands of God, but we have to remember that his prohibitions are not a punishment. He doesn't give us prohibitions to steal our joy. It's to protect us. And boy, that is the rap that the church has gotten for so long. Oh, God, is just a cosmic killjoy. He's trying to destroy all your fun. No, it's a protective measure from a father who loves us. And if you're a dad here this morning, you get this. You don't tell your, your son, don't touch that because you want to steal his joy. You're like, that will hurt. God does not want us to fall into harm. And we have this great example of Adam and Eve, right? Right? So much freedom in the garden. One prohibition, don't touch that one tree. And now we know why that prohibition was put in place. It was for their happiness, for their blessing, for their good. But they failed. So we should praise God for both what he prohibits and for what he provides. Amen? So here we have a threefold warning. This is a warning not to be like Kevin. Poor Kevin. He has no idea what's happening this morning. First, don't walk in the counsel of the wicked. In other words, the person who's blessed by God doesn't live by the principles that violate God's instructions. If you walk in the counsel of the wicked, it means you're, you're walking according to the principles of the world. They're values, right? It's not God's. It means you're living like an unbeliever, like somebody that either doesn't acknowledge God or doesn't take his word seriously. Every day we're bombarded by this type of counsel from the wicked, aren't we? It's all around us every day. So we've got to have a protective measure up because this bombards us. False advice. False advice that promises a counterfeit brand of happiness. Look, the enemy's going to tell you, what you see in that Bible, that's not happiness. That's restrictive. What you need is what we provide you. Right? But the righteous man, this is important, has trained his mind and his heart to discern that lie. He's trained it. He's worked on it. He discerns the lie. He says, no, that's not from God. I recognize that. That's not from God. He sees it for what it is. He knows it's foolishness. He knows it's temporal. He knows it's ungodly. And he says, I will not walk that path. This is why here at Oak Hill, we talk all the time about how we all have to be developing our biblical worldview so that in those moments of crisis at the crossroads of decision-making, we say, nope, I get this. I see it. I see it for what it is. And we make the right choice. We don't walk in the counsel of the wicked. Secondly, the person who is favored by God doesn't stand in the path of sinners, meaning he doesn't associate with unbelievers in their ungodly desires and behaviors. When you stand in the path of sinners, you're adopting a worldly lifestyle that doesn't line up with your profession of faith. So don't stand there. Now, you may object. You're like, but wait, we're supposed to witness to unbelievers. So how do we do that if we can't associate with them? Well, Jesus tells us. He gives us the model, right? Every time Jesus met with sinners, did he do it to fit in and to adopt their worldly lifestyles? 
may it never be. He, he associated with sinners for the purpose of pointing out their lost condition and to bring them to a place of repentance. And so whereas once you and I associated with people in the world in order to join them in their sin, now things have changed. Now when we associate with sinners, and we should, we should, right? We share the same goal that Jesus had to show them their spiritual need. But don't stand in the path of sinners. Third thing, the person who's blessed by God doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. He doesn't join with those who disregard God. He doesn't join with those who despise his instruction. They will not sit with people who slander his people. Kevin is a proud scoffer, isn't he? I made it happen, he said. I didn't need God. Who's God? I made it happen. I didn't get sprinkled with magic. He's scoffing at the God of the universe. When you sit in the company of scoffers, you become an enemy of all that God declares to be holy and righteous. And today, scoffers are legion, aren't they? There's so many of them out there. Is that number going to increase? I believe it will. As things get darker, I believe it will. So we've got to be more deeply rooted than ever because scoffers are everywhere. And a lot of them come out of the church, don't they? They're the so-called deconstructors, the online critics who have now cut themselves off from the church and said, well, I no longer follow organized religion. So what they do is, is they group up and they sit in seats with other scoffers who will make them feel better about themselves in their unbelief. They've been deceived into thinking that they found enlightenment, but the truth is what they're really doing is they've separated themselves from the church so that they can now fulfill their fleshly desires. That's the motivation. Now, a quick note about the flow of this first verse. There are some scholars, and there could be some truth to this, who believe that there is an evil progression being described here. Think about this. First you walk, and you head in the wrong direction. Then you stand and you linger in sin. And then finally you sit. And that means you've now found yourself feeling very comfortable in the midst of all that. Or another way to look at it is first you listen to counsel and you begin to think wrongly. Then you stand in the path and you engage in wrong behavior. And finally you sit in the seat and that means you now belong to that wicked crowd. So this idea of a, a, of a, a progression of evil. Walking, standing, and sitting leads to thinking, behaving, and belonging. And that may be true, but I also think in a bigger picture, what the psalmist is describing here is just the totality of evil among humankind. It's what you're going to find out there in the world. This is the way of the wicked. So believer, hear me now and take notice. This is the world's path. It is not yours. This is the world's path, not yours. And the psalmist is trying to get your attention related to influence, which is such an important world word. What influences you day to day? What shapes your thinking? How do you determine your choices? If you've never thought about this before, man, it's time to take a step back and go, okay, what, in the way I live, what is, what's driving me in that direction? What's influencing me? What's shaping me? And I would say for those of you guys, you younger folks in your 20s and 30s right now, if you want to listen to an old guy like me, Jeff, what's going to shape me the most over the next 10 years of my life? My answer to you is very, very simple. It's what you take in and think about, and it's who you seek out in terms of influence. 
what you take in and who you seek out. You have clear choices in both of those areas. And you've got the way of the wicked and the way of the righteous. So choose wisely if you are among the assembly of the righteous, if you are blessed by God. Choose wisely. Make sense? Okay, having dealt with things to avoid now in, in verse 1, now we come to the positive aspects of this in verse 2. Look at verse 2. But, contrasting word, his delight is in the law of the Lord. Now, don't get that twisted up too much. The best way to understand that is God's instruction in totality. His delight is in the Lord's instruction, and in his law he meditates day and night. So here's climactic parallelism. Okay, The first line makes the statement. The second line brings it to completion. The righteous man delights in the word of God. How so, you might ask? He constantly meditates upon what it says. Very important. What does it mean to delight? To delight in what God says. Well, the Hebrew word for delight is exactly what the word means in English. And it has two aspects to it. First of all, it's something that you long to do. And second, it's something that brings you pleasure. To delight in something means you long to do it and it brings you pleasure. In fact, the same word in the Hebrew canon is used to describe how a young man delights in a young woman. So that tells us something, right? When a young man sees a woman who's attractive, he delights in her, meaning what? He rearranges his life to get to know her. <laughs> oh, everybody feels this one, right? All of a sudden, I have time and energy. Why? Because I delight in this woman. I, I have whole new priorities to be with her. I don't, I don't do it because I have to. I do it because I want to. That's what it means to delight. You see, if somebody delights in something, you don't have to beg them to do it. They hunger for it. And with that said, answer the question in your heart. Is that how you feel about studying God's word? Because that's the advice of the psalmist. The amazing thing is, is never before in human history have we had more resources available to us to study God's word. And yet, previous generations of, of Christians memorized massive volumes of scripture, studied it so much more than we do. And they had so little to work with. Now, some of that is due to this crazy number of distractions we have in our culture right now. But I also think it's due to the fact that we just don't value it. We really don't value the study of Scripture like we used to. The fact is, we think we'll get along just fine without it. Right? And there's so many other things to delight in and to focus on. So what's the big deal? Spurgeon, even in his day, knew this. Here's a great quote from Spurgeon. He said, Man must have some delight, he wrote, some supreme pleasure. His heart was never meant to be a vacuum. So if not filled with the best things... It will be filled with unworthy things and disappointing things. That's true of all of us. And so though none of us would like to admit it out loud, there are many things we desire more than the Lord, more than his word. We're really not that different from the Israelites. You know how oftentimes we read the Old Testament, we're like, the Israelites went and chased after Baal, and we laugh at them. How could they do that? Have you noticed the irony in that? How could they go after false gods? Meanwhile, our Bibles are accumulating layers of dust and we're chasing after all the gods of the current culture. The irony. Now, the psalmist isn't done. It starts with delight, but then there's step two. We meditate it on God's word all the time. The righteous man 
ponders the Word of God. He doesn't just read a few verses or even read a chapter and then check it off his box and move on with his day. I mean, I'm never going to discourage you being in God's Word, but if that's all it is, I'm going to check a box and just move on, and I, I close the sacred in my life and open up the secular, then you've missed what he's talking about here. This is really not about a devotional time, although I highly recommend it. It's about extending your devotional time and applying God's word in all the daily activities of your life. In fact, this is probably the closest thing that we have to this idea in the New Testament of praying without ceasing. People ask, well, I can't keep praying all day. Well, are you walking with God? Are you, is, is he a part of everything that happens in your daily life? That's what it means. It's an hour-by-hour walking in fellowship with the Lord. So we're to do this all the time. We're to filter all the things happening in our daily life through this grid of his word. But that implies that we know the word in the first place. You can't filter it through that grid if you don't know the word, if you haven't studied the word. You have to have your heart trained in the word so that, again, when you come to those decision-making moments, you act with discernment and with wisdom. Because the word, you're filled with the word and you're meditating upon it all day. But guys, it's not going to happen by osmosis. If I'm just around church enough, it's all going to come in. No, that's not the way it works. For the righteous man, this is an intentional choice. An intentional choice to fill his mind and heart with scripture so that he makes those wise decisions. So the word is the basis for your fellowship with God. We don't maybe say that as clearly or as often as we should. The word is the basis for your fellowship with God. That means we should delight to hear it. We should delight to hear his voice in the word. We should delight to meditate upon it and actually pray it back to him. That's the basis of our fellowship with him, the word. Now, let me put verses 1 and 2 together and issue a warning. If you disregard God's word and all you do is give your attention to the ways of the world you will find yourself delighting, but not in the Lord. You will find yourself slowly delighting more in the ways of the world. That's the path of the wicked. Guys, that is how worldliness sneaks into the church. Have you ever, have you ever had that question like, I, I don't know why I'm feeling so worldly. Well, what are you meditating on? If you're just focused on all the things that the world offers, you will start to delight in those things. Such a practical lesson from the psalmist, right? Okay, let's move on to verse 3. For the person who builds their life on God's word, what will they look like? Verse 3, he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In whatever he does, he prospers. Oh, I don't want that. Who wants prosperity? Who wants to be firmly planted? The world has so much to offer me. The, the, the mental processes we walk through are crazy, aren't they? Because we should all want this. What a beautiful picture. Can you picture that in your mind? What that tree looks like? What does it look like to be that green, constantly fed by this stream that's going by? In Hebrew poetry, the tree is a common metaphor for blessed living. The imagery isn't hard to understand. The result of a man or woman who continually delights in God's instruction, who meditates on it consistently, 
the roots of his or her life are fed by this continual supply of life-giving water. It's the wisdom of the word. And it's a continual feeding. And that's how you get that green. That's how you get that much fruit. So the righteous man is characterized by success in life. Whatever he does, the Lord sends prosperity his way. Now some of that is going to come in the form of physical and material blessings. Success in a career. Success in relationships. Success in marriage. In child rearing. Success in ministry. Now the godly man doesn't set out for success. That's not the goal. What he does is he puts the kingdom first in his life as a priority and the success becomes a byproduct as the Lord blesses him. So make sure we understand that, that framework as well. It doesn't mean that the righteous man has no trials in his life or no tribulations. In fact, we can't avoid that in a fallen world. In fact, the righteous man would say, I actually need those trials in order to further refine my faith. So we're not about a prosperity gospel here, right? Trials and tribulations will come. The prosperity he's promised here in verse 3 transcends the basic circumstances of life trials and tribulations, right? Why? Because it's a prosperity ultimately in the soul. It's a prosperity in the inner man that God is blessing. That's what the psalmist means when he says yielding fruit, right? It fu- when you yield fruit, you fulfill the purpose for which you were created, just like a tree. An avocado tree fulfills its purpose when it grows big and produces avocados. A shade tree fulfills its purpose when it grows strong and mature and it branches out and it provides shade. Same thing with the righteous man who abides in the word of God. He grows to maturity and he becomes all that God intends him to be, a fruit producer that then becomes a blessing to everybody else. He's a man who loves others more than he loves himself. He's a man who's filled with joy and peace even in the storms of life. Why? Because his roots go down deep. And again, they're continually fed by this water, replenished. And that gives his life strength and stability. Guys, in this world that right now is crumbling, we all see it, right? It's one of the things I'm constant. I'm looking at the news, and I'm looking at the, the way things are spiraling, and I'm like, what we need right now are Christian men and women who are stable, who are strong in the Lord, who are firmly planted. They're not knocked around by everything. If you find yourself being knocked around by every bit of news or whatever craziness is happening right now, you've got to ask yourself, am I really deeply planted? Am I being fed by these streams of of life-giving water? Why am I tossed to and fro all the time? When the rains don't come and it's drought season, the psalmist says, even then, this righteous man's leaf does not wither because the Lord sustains him. And and Jesus talked about this in Matthew 7, right? Everyone who hears these words of mine, Jesus said, and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against the house, yet it did not fall. Why? Because it was built on the rock. Don't you love when the Old Testament and the New Testament come together so beautifully? Same lesson. Built on the rock, sustained by life-giving water. We need to be stable right now. I, I feel it, even within our church. Like People are acting in, in ways that I'm like, that doesn't line up with who I know that person to be because the worldliness is creeping in and it's causing people to, to grow unstable. This is what we need to be right now. 
in the midst of the world we live in. Okay, I could, that's a whole nother message. All right, we come to verse four. Now we come to what we call antithetical parallelism, where we get a completely different picture of what we read about in verse three, the antithesis of it. Okay, verse three was what? Strength, stability, prosperity, fruit, all these things. Verse four is the opposite. The wicked are not so, the psalmist says. What are they like? They're like chaff, which the wind drives away. Now, chaff is not something that we usually deal with in our lives, right? But if you were a 10th century Israelite, BC Israelite, this was an everyday reality. Chaff is the light shell that comes around the, the kernel of grain that then gets stripped off so you can take that kernel of grain and pound it into flour. Okay, I'll give you a picture so you can see it. Okay, grain, chaff. And as you can see in the picture on the right, it's super light and it's easily separated when you just take a big old pitchfork of it and chuck it up in the air. It gets blown away and it separates the, the kernel from the chaff. So although it spends some amount of time housing that kernel of grain, at the end of the day, chaff is completely useless. It's useless. If it had any other purpose, the farmer would save it, but it doesn't. So he lets it blow away. In fact, the wind does him a service in taking it away. That's how useless it is. So the contrast that the psalmist is drawing here, it sounds very severe to our ears. We don't like this much because listen, trees are of great value, especially in the context of, of ancient Israel in a desert Mediterranean region. Trees have great value. They're highly prized as is the righteous man in God's eyes. Highly prized. Because the righteous man is alive and he's rooted and he's strong and he's fruitful. But the wicked are the opposite. Like chaff, they're dead. They are rootless. They are weightless. And they are useless in God's eyes. You can, listen, you could take a, a pile of chaff and water it day and night. It won't grow because it's dead. It has no life in it. Just as the, the unbeliever, the, the person on the path of wickedness, you can preach the word to him all night and day, no life, no spiritual life. And so at the end, the wicked will be blown away like chaff in the wind. In fact, Malachi prophesies at the very end of the Old Testament. Malachi 4.1 says, Behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, when all of the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. The coming day will consume them, says the Lord of hosts, leaving them neither root nor branch. And that's how the psalmist wraps up this psalm in verses 5 and 6. Now he's going to telescope eschatologically to the judgment day. Look at verse 5. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So this is the final separation, right? like the sheep and the goats in the New Testament. And as sure as I'm standing in this pulpit this morning, there is a day coming when the great harvester will come and, and judge all things. It will happen. And in that day, the wicked will have no defense for the counsel that they walked in. They will have no defense for the path that they stood in. They will have no defense for the, for the seats that they sat in and scoffed at the very judge who they now stand before. And they will not stand in that day. They will be removed from the assembly of the righteous, blown away by the wind. 
Listen, the psalmist doesn't hold back in his language. You'll find this throughout the psalms. This is not politically correct. He does not stand. He does not hold back. By the way, the ancient Israelites understood that word picture, this idea that divine judgment meant removal from the congregation, removal from worship, removal from sacrifice, removal from prayer. And then that idea comes into the New Testament church where heretical beliefs and unrepentant sin in the life of a professing Christian brings about church discipline and that too requires removal from the congregation. So again, a consistent principle here. And the psalmist says here, the Lord knows those who are on the path of the righteous. Why? Because they belong to him. But he also knows the end, who, the end of those who are on the path of the wicked. Their end is destruction. So a quick wrap-up. I know I'm running out of time. Listen, the application of the psalm is not complicated. Right? It's not easy, but it's very straightforward, is it not? I'm sure the Spirit has already pointed out some things to you, as He did to me this week in prep, that you need to give attention to. If you and I are favored by God, if we belong to the assembly of the righteous, then we have an obligation, don't we? That involves both rejecting worldliness and beginning to delight in God's Word, to meditate upon it. And what's the goal? It's very simple, to become that fruitful tree to become the fruitful tree that brings glory to the one who has done everything for you, who has loved you, who has chosen you, who has bled and died for you, who has justified you, and has promised you eternal life. That's the obligation, to become that tree that is planted by streams of life-giving water. How do we live up to that standard, right? Because that's a big vision. Well, the answer is what? We can't. We can't, right? We're too weak. We're still too fleshly. We're not committed enough. So what do we do? What do we do when we can't live up to the standard? Well, we lean into the Lord. We abide with Christ moment by moment, day by day, dwelling with him and meditating upon his instructions. And then we trust that the spirit is going to produce fruit in and through us, that the spirit is going to build us stronger, that he is going to make us more stable, more obedient, that he's going to give us a greater love for him and a greater love for others. And as we stand in this undeserved place of the assembly of the righteous, what do we do? We praise him. We praise him with our lips, with our hearts, and with our lives. Because he's worthy of that. Because none of it is due to us. It's all his sovereign grace. Now, now, when you say, I am so blessed, the next time you catch yourself saying it, I am so blessed, now I want you to understand what you're really saying. God is good, amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for showing us the truth of what these things mean, Lord. Lord, hold our tongues from trite sayings that, that, that don't come from a true place in our hearts. Help us to understand the reality of what it means to have your favor, to be blessed by you. And may we communicate that well with a lost world that needs to see what it means to be truly blessed by the Creator. Father, I pray a just... A, protection, protection, your divine protection over the members here at Oak Hill. I pray, God, that you would convict us in those areas where we need to be turning away from worldliness. Even now this morning, Lord, if we're caught up in a place where we are starting to drift into the way of the wicked, 
God, that you would point that out to us, that you would bring a conviction to our heart and that we would honor you and bring glory to your name because you have loved us and we will get back on the path of wisdom. Lord, give us a greater heart for your word. Give us a desire and a longing to dwell with you and to hear your word. Lord, we can't do that on our own. Our flesh doesn't want it. So I pray for myself and I pray for my brothers and sisters that you would bring that into our lives. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the practicality of your word. Apply it to our hearts this morning for your glory and our good. Amen.